think it's fair to say that pretty much no one likes to wait. There may be some exceptions out there somewhere, but in general, we don't like to wait. We can see that in small little things like how we gravitate towards the fastest line in traffic, how we always search for what we believe to be is going to be the shortest line at the grocery store. We can see it in things like how we get grumpy and irritable when our internet connection is slow, when we see the spinning wheel of buffering and uh, we feel our pulse start to rise. We can see it in how we get an email from Amazon saying our package is going to be delayed and how much that sort of irks us and irritates us. We can see it when the the emotions rise in us when someone doesn't respond to our text message or our email maybe as quickly as we would hope they would. In all these ways uh, and so many more, we don't like to wait. Some kinds of waiting, like the ones that I just described, are a matter of slight inconvenience, right? And we can and should laugh at those things because uh, those are like first world problems that we have. So some waiting is a matter of slight inconvenience, but some waiting requires us to walk through deep spiritual and emotional waters. Some of you in the room tonight, you might find yourself here waiting on a potentially life-altering diagnosis. Or waiting to see if the treatment plan that you are on right now is going to work or not. Maybe you find yourself here tonight and your body is getting older. And you're wondering which part of your body is going to stop working next. And you're just waiting for whatever that is to happen. Maybe you're here tonight and you are in an especially difficult season of parenting. And you are just waiting and hoping that after a short period of time, things are going to change, things are going to get better. Maybe you're here tonight and you're facing a potentially life-altering decision that you have to make, a fork in the road sort of turning point moment in your life, and maybe you have information that you're waiting on, or maybe you just don't feel settled about any particular decision, and so you're you're, you're feeling anxious about waiting to make that decision finally. Maybe you're here tonight and you are waiting on a relationship, that is or has been for a long time on life support. And you are wondering and you're waiting and you are hoping that that relationship is even going to survive. Maybe you're here tonight and you are waiting on God in a season where he feels distant and silent to you. Maybe you felt this way for a very long time. And if you're honest, you would say, you know, I, I, I know that I believe all the right things. And yet internally, my soul feels dry as dust. It's hard to wait. It's very hard to wait. What I want to suggest tonight as we think just for a few moments about this passage is that what we need to do as followers of Jesus is we need to cultivate the practice of productive waiting. I think we all know that there is some kind of waiting that's not productive. You can say it's maybe counterproductive because it doesn't breed within us the kind of hope that we should have knowing that God is with us in the midst of our waiting. What we need to do is we need to cultivate the practice of productive waiting. And so the question is, well, how do we do that? What does productive waiting look like? Psalm 143 shows us a snapshot in the life of David as he is waiting on God. 
in the midst of disorientation, in the midst of very difficult and painful and hard circumstances. And as we spend a few moments looking at Psalm 143, what we see is that it provides us with something of a pattern, of a template to follow, so that we can learn how to wait on God in a way that is productive. So how do we cultivate productive waiting? I'm going to suggest that this psalm gives us a few uh, pieces of the pattern. And the first is, number one, own your emotions. Waiting is an emotional process. As you wait on God for a variety of different things, as we wait, we may feel anxiety. We may feel fear. We may feel uncertainty as we're looking out into something that is entirely unknown and we don't know what's ahead of us, and it's scary. Sometimes as we wait, we find ourselves feeling anger or bitterness or resentment at the circumstances that we experience, at the way that things are going in our life. Sometimes as we wait, what we feel is a deep sense of sadness and just disappointment that this is how our life has turned out. I envision my life looking this way, and here I am today, and my life looks very different. And there's a grieving process that goes along with just owning and naming the reality of what my life actually is compared to what I thought it was going to be. Maybe as you wait, what you feel is loneliness. You feel isolation because maybe you look around and it doesn't look like anyone else is struggling. It doesn't look like anyone else is experiencing the exact same kind of thing that you are. And so you feel totally isolated and totally alone, like no one ever can understand what it is that you're experiencing. And so in the midst of your waiting, you just feel lonely. Sometimes as we wait, we may feel physical pain. And that physical pain, for those of us who have experienced that, knows that that can so quickly translate into emotional pain. And so there's all these different ways that we experience the emotional nature of waiting. Waiting is an emotional process, and we short-circuit the formative power of waiting when we leave our emotions unnamed. When we leave our emotions unnamed and when we leave our emotions unprayed, we short-circuit the formative power of waiting. As we look at Psalm 143, what we see is a a clear picture of David pouring out his emotions before God. He's pouring his heart out before God. We see him crying out to God, begging God to listen to him, begging God to come to his rescue to do something about what it is that he's experiencing. We also see him, he's naming the circumstances that he's feeling, that he's experiencing, and how those things have uh, affected him internally. So in verse 3, we see, he says, The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in the darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. I spread out my hands to you. I thirst for you like a parched land. We don't know exactly what circumstances David was experiencing as he was writing this psalm. But what we can see from looking at this passage is that he is teetering on the brink of emotional and spiritual collapse. You can see it so obviously in the language. My heart is faint. I'm dismayed. My soul thirsts for you, God. 
I'm longing, I'm aching for something to change. And this is what it looks like for him to wait on God. For our waiting to be productive, we have to slow down long enough to name what it is that we are experiencing internally. For our productive to actually be a formative thing in our life, in order for us to experience the formative power of waiting, we have to name our emotions. When our emotions go unnamed and unprocessed before God in prayer, they will simply put, they will eat us alive. And some of you have maybe experienced what it's like to stuff or to suppress or to act as if what you're feeling is unimportant in the scope of things. There are some people that place too much emphasis on emotions, right? And they are driven by their emotions in, in this way. Other people, some in the evangelical tradition that we find ourselves a part of, have gone the opposite extreme and have acted as if their emotions mean absolutely nothing. And what we see here from David is that he named his emotions before God. So this is the first part of the pattern of us learning to wait on God in a productive way is we own our emotions. The second part that we see here in this psalm is bring them to God. So number one, own your emotions. Number two, bring them to God. And again, David models this for us. We see in verse one, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. Verse 7, answer me quickly. Lord, my spirit fails. Verse 9, rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. This entire psalm is David not just feeling and naming his emotions, but pouring those emotions out before God. And it's important, I think, for us to just notice that David is doing more than just spilling his heart before God. Okay, He is naming the situation that has caused him turmoil. He's surrounded by his enemies or seeking to take his life. So he does name those circumstances. He does name his emotions. But what he's doing here is not simply a kind of spiritual venting to God. We see that he also, he remembers God's actions and his character throughout this psalm. Verse five, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. So what he's doing is he's filling his mind and he's filling his heart with what he knows to be true about who God is. Not only this, we see him affirming his trust in God. He says in verse eight, let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go for to you I entrust my life. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. And at the very end of the psalm, he says, I am your servant. So David here is not only just remembering God's actions and his character, remembering what God has done in the past, which informs what he knows to be true about who God is. He's also affirming his trust in God, and he's simply crying out to God, asking for help. Verse 11, for your name's sake, Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. So he's not just sort of spiritually venting to God. He's doing all of these things together. He's remembering God's actions and his character. He's affirming his trust in God. He's asking God for help. And for our waiting to be productive, we have to, like David, not only just identify and name our emotions to ourselves, 
we must bring them before God in prayer. I think it's really easy for us to read a psalm like this or to read any psalm and to think that it took David as long to write this as it takes us to read it. Right? It takes about three minutes to read the whole psalm and it's like, well, it's probably about how long that David, you know, took him to write this. You know, we sort of think, think about the psalms in particular as a, as a transcript of an extemporaneous sort of off-the-cuff prayer where David just prayed out loud and, you know, he just picked up his pen and this whole thing just like flowed out. <laughs> That's not how this happened. That's not how the psalms in general work. This psalm and all of the other psalms are literary pieces of art. And they have structure to them. And they have images and they have carefully crafted word pictures and words. They are carefully crafted pieces of art. And so what we know is that Psalm 143 is not David's sort of stream of consciousness. Psalm 143 is the result of hours and hours worth of David bringing his pain before God in prayer. David has spent hours bringing his pain and bringing his emotions and bringing the circumstance into the presence of God and he's turning it over in God's presence. And he's affirming his trust and he's asking God for help and he's, as he's doing this over and over again, this prayer is the result of a long time worth of him laboring in prayer before God. And so what we can see, what we can take away from this from this psalm in particular, and all the psalms for that matter, is that bringing our emotions to God is not a one-and-done thing. Okay, bringing our emotions to God is not like a, okay, I did that once, I identified my emotions, and I gave them to God in a quick little prayer, and boom, just like that, everything is different. That's not how it works. Waiting on God is a dynamic and ongoing process. We own our emotions and we turn them over in God's presence for as long as it takes. This is an open-ended thing that we step into as we learn to wait on God. There's no timeline. There is no guarantee that if you do it for this long, you'll find this kind of resolution. We bring these things into the presence of God for as long as it takes. The last part of this pattern that we see here is we see that we're called to own our emotions. We bring them to God. And lastly, we surrender to his unfailing love. As David is waiting on God in this psalm, he appeals for deliverance on the basis of God's faithful covenant love. Verse 11 and 12, he says, For your name's sake, Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies, destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. The Hebrew word that's translated unfailing love in our English Bibles is a very specific word. It's a very specific word in the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament. And it is a word that refers to the specific covenant, faithful, loyal love of God to his people, Israel. And the place that this word brings our minds back to whenever we see it is the story of the Exodus. 
When God led his people out of Exodus, he destroyed Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies, and he led the people out into the wilderness, into his presence, and as they are waiting on the instruction of the Lord to come down with Moses, they create this golden calf and they create this, this you know, they, they, they do all this idolatry at the base of the mountain. And as a response to that, God revealed his nature and his character to Moses saying, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And that's the same exact word that's used here in this passage to talk about God's unfailing love. It's God's faithful, covenant, loyal love. And it brings our minds, it's like a, a, like a glaring blue hyperlink that brings our minds back to the story of the Exodus. And this is what David is appealing to in this psalm. He appeals to it here in verse 12. It's the same word that's used in verse 8 when it says, let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love. This is what David is appealing to. He's saying, God, your people were oppressed and enslaved for 400 years. And they waited for generations for you to deliver them. You destroyed their enemies. You vanquished their foes. And I'm asking you to do it again, this time for me. I'm appealing to the faithful covenant loyal love that you expressed in the Exodus, I want you to do that same kind of Exodus thing in my life too. I need you to come and destroy my enemies and to come to my rescue. And so David knew by looking back to what God had done, David knew that he was a God of faithful, covenant, loyal love because he looked back to the Exodus and the Exodus to him proved this is who God is. This is his nature. This is his character. He's the kind of God who sees his people in distress. He's the kind of God who sees his people in the midst of calamity, in the midst of awful circumstances, and he hears their cries and loves to deliver them. This is the kind of God he is. And David is saying, I know this is who you are. I want you to do that again in my life. So David knows the faithfulness and the character of God because he looks back to the Exodus, which was the defining mark, the defining moment of God's deliverance in the Hebrew Bible. And as we wait on God, we too look back, but to an event that was for David in the future. We look to the cross of Jesus, which the New Testament talks about as a new and better and greater Exodus. The Old Testament and New Testament exodus. The first exodus of exodus out of slavery in Egypt and the second exodus of the exodus from slavery to sin and death that we have. Holding those two side by side is like holding a tea candle next to the sun. One is so much bigger and fuller and more powerful and rich and wonderful than the other. And so we look back to the cross of Jesus, and what we see is that through the cross, God delivered us not just from our political enemies, he delivered us from our greatest enemy. He delivered us not just from bad circumstances, as bad as those circumstances were, and sometimes he does deliver us from bad circumstances, but as we look back to the cross, what we see is that God did not just or merely deliver us from bad things that happened to us, but he delivered us from sin and from death and from the evil one. At the cross, he silenced our enemy once and for all. 
At the cross, he vanquished our ultimate foe once and for all. And so we too now look back to the cross in the same way that David did, looking back to the Exodus, we look back to the cross and say, this is the clearest example that exists of God's faithful covenant loyal love for us. And we surrender ourselves to his unfailing love. Surrendering ourselves to his unfailing love means surrendering to his will and to his ways and to his timing as we wait. That's not always what I want to hear in my waiting. Is that I need to surrender to the way that God wants to do this. His will, his ways, his timing. But that's what it means to surrender to his unfailing love is to recognize, not just, we don't, we don't do that blindly, right? We don't do so saying to ourselves, well, I'm going to do this hoping that it's going to turn out for my good in the end. No, what we do is we look to the cross and we see the faithful, covenant, loyal love of God poured out for us in ways that we will never understand or fully wrap our minds around. We will spend all of eternity in new heavens and new earth, and it, we will never fully understand the magnitude and, and the depth of what God has done for us in Jesus. We look to the cross and we realize that he has already given us every single thing that we need for our good and for our flourishing. We know his, unf- his, his faithful, unfailing covenant loyal love is for us. He's demonstrated the lengths to which he's willing to go to rescue us from our greatest enemy. And so we can look back to the cross and see his faithful covenant loyal love displayed for us, and that changes the way that we wait. That fundamentally changes the way that we wait, because as we wait, the longer we wait and the more... Uh, the, the depth of emotion that we experience and, and, and if, our, if, if our waiting is, is filled with, uh, with pain and difficulty, as we wait on God, we will experience all sorts of questions and all sorts of doubts that will come into our mind and we'll look at our circumstances and we'll say, God, are you even there? God, do you care? Do you love me? Are you for me? And the longer we wait, the more we will experience those kinds of questions and those kinds of doubts that will creep in. And so what we do is we surrender ourselves to his unfailing love. We look to the cross, which is the greatest display of his faithful, loyal love for us. And that totally changes how we wait. What are you waiting on this Lent season? What is it that you find yourself waiting on God for? Maybe there's an area of your life where you are waiting for some kind of deliverance. Maybe there's an area of your life where you are just hoping that there is some sort of breakthrough. Maybe there's an area of your life where you are longing for some sort of healing and resolution and you've been waiting on God. What is that area of your life What are you waiting on this Lent season? As we journey towards Resurrection Sunday, I want to encourage you to take Psalm 143 and make this your own. Take Psalm 143 
and using it as something of a template. Own your emotions. Bring them before God and surrender to his unfailing love. As you came in today, you should have received a little half sheet of paper. If you didn't, there's some out at the connections table just out there in the entryway. So if you didn't get one of these, you can grab one on your way out. On one side, there is Psalm 143. On the other side is this sort of framework of own your emotions, bring them to God, surrender to his unfailing love, which is a a small little bit of uh, instruction that we hope is helpful for you as you uh, begin to practice this. And so our encouragement to you is to take Psalm 143 and for as long as it takes, but for at least the season of Advent until Easter, Take this and make this psalm your own. We hope this is a helpful tool for you as you do so. As we come to the communion table today, I want to just leave you with this word of encouragement. We don't wait on God so that we can get what we want. God himself is the goal of our waiting. So often we can approach waiting as like, okay, we need to get through waiting so that we can get what's on the other side of all the waiting. And we look at the waiting as like, eh, it's kind of just like a, you know, it's throwaway time. It's not really useful time. It's time that's, you know, that's not well spent until I get what I want on the other side of it. We don't wait in hopes that in the end, God's going to give us what we want on the other side of our waiting. God himself is the goal of our waiting. And there's a kind of communion with Jesus that you can only experience as you are waiting on him. There's a kind of experience of Jesus that you can only have when you come to him and own your emotions and pour them out before him. And as you, like the psalmist, can come to God and and just own things like, man, I'm so dry as dust on the inside. There's a kind of communion with Jesus that we can only experience in the midst of waiting. So our waiting is not pointless. Our waiting is not useless. He's not just the God of the end result. He's the God of the process. He's the God who's with us in the midst of all of our waiting. And so... I want to just encourage you as you take Psalm 143 and make it your own this Lent season, don't forget that the process of waiting on God is a part of what it means to commune with Jesus. So I invite you to step into that this Lent season leading up to Easter. This evening, we get to come to the communion table. And as we do, I want to leave just a few moments for silence and confession. And at the end of that time, we are going to have a responsive confession reading of Psalm 51. There will be some of those slides that say leader that I will read and some of them that you all can read. So just pay attention to what the slide says. And uh, let's take a few moments of silence for confession. And then we will uh, confess our sins together using Psalm 51.